Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. My name is Eric Nemchak, alongside Stephen Trinkwald. We are continuing our 2022 WNBA team outlooks. And hey, we're almost done. We're on our last team. We saved the worst for last, the Indiana Fever. Worst uh, only by record, not in our heart, of course. The Indiana Fever went 6-26 and 26 in the regular season. That was good for last, 12th place. They started the season 1-16. They did not win back-to-back games, but for one time, right before the Olympic break when they won three in a row, they ended the season on a seven-game losing streak. They were 12th in net rating at negative 12.5. They were 11th in offense at 95.3 offensive rating, a significant step down, disappointingly, from being 8th in offense in the bubble. They were the worst defense in the league yet again, 107.8 defensive rating, the fifth season in a row being either the worst or second worst defense in the league, and the second season in a row being the worst defense in the league by a full 3 points per 100 possessions. So apart from this team being horrible, uh, what stood out about the Indiana Fever in in 2021? Well, I think a lot of the same frustrations from the previous season in some ways, not starting Tier McCowan. Obviously, this was a very controversial in some ways offseason prior to this season where You know, they had brought in three pretty high-priced free agents, all over 30 for, you know, again, what was the worst, or I guess the prior season, they were the second worst team in the league, two of which on veteran-protected three-year deals. They made what was a surprising, I would say, lottery pick in Kaiser Gondrzic in the 2021 draft. That was one that, I, I don't think you had that on your draft board, right, Eric? Uh, safe to say I did not. Uh, I was not even close to that, actually. So sometimes I get it wrong. <laughs> uh, they made another first-round pick when they traded Kennedy Burke, um, who only played 119 minutes. So they were terrible and did not really even get development reps for their young players. Gondrzic only played 173 minutes. So it was not great. It was a very, you know, teams can be bad and they can be exciting in, in a lot of ways. And I think maybe... This team coming up, the 2022 Indiana Fever might fall under that category. Um, But this team was kind of just bad and frustrating, I would say. It was bad and frustrating. I mean, we talked about this at length. We've been talking about it for maybe about a year now, ever since they started making those very strange transactions. Like, it's one thing to say, it's it's one thing to make um, draft picks that are kind of off the rails a little bit. Because, you know, not everyone has the same process and not everyone has the same scouting department or whatever. These people know more about basketball than I do. So I can give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But when you compound that by investing a lot of guaranteed money in long deals for veterans who probably aren't going to move the competitive needle for your team that much, either immediately or in the you know short-term future, then I have to question what the process exactly is. You know, it's not just, it's not, it's not just the fever were bad. It's they were bad. They were losing with... Not a very good roster. I mean, and I mean, not a roster with a very high ceiling either. So it's like, and not a what? roster with a lot of theory behind it. I would okay, say. that's a good. That's a good. So explain that a little bit more. Like, when you mean behind theory, like what would you expect that theory to be? Well, one that brings, if you're going to bring in high-priced free agents, you would hope that those players one fit your timeline a little bit better, which I don't think. D. Rob and Jessica Breland and John Tell Lavender were ever really going to fit this team's timeline. And two, complement the skill set of the players that you're building around. Like D. Rob does not complement Kelsey Mitchell's skill set, I would say. No. John Tell Lavender does not complement Tierra McCowan's skill set. So I know, you know, this team was obviously eager to make some moves that would, I think, improve the culture. And I think those those two players probably wouldn't improve the culture of a team with maybe a struggling locker room. I'm sure they're very positive influences in the locker, Jessica Breland included in that group, I, I should say. But when you're actually putting out a product on the basketball court, I, I don't think there was really much of an idea of how that could really help those players that you're building around. Well, we got the results. Um, it didn't. It didn't help those players. It didn't help anybody, really. And it cost Tamika Catchings her GM job. She is no longer the Fever GM. I'm not sure if she was if she actually resigned or was kind of ushered out of the position. But um, 
Marianne Stanley, still the head coach, which is kind of surprising to me. But yeah, Fever under new management, Lynn Dunn, famously the the 2012 Fever head coach in which they won the WNBA Finals. Um, so they at least got somebody who, you know, has the experience and has maybe a little bit more of a reputation as being a, I don't want to say a good GM because, you know, she wasn't the GM previously, but uh, a little more prestige. We'll put it that way. Yeah, I was going to say maybe a little bit more credibility in the organization, but she's replacing Tamika Catchings. Of course, she doesn't have more credibility than Tamika Catchings. Um, but, you know, from like a, maybe from like a, a front office standpoint outside of the, the player role. But uh, yeah, I do think it's a little bit surprising that Dunn, despite really kind of cleaning house on nearly every draft pick or signing that was made in the Tamika Catchings era, has held on to Marianne Stanley. To this point, you know, we're, we're just a couple of days before the season. Hard to see that changing at the time of this recording. But that, that would have been, you know, something that I would have maybe expected to be one of her kind of first orders of business was bringing in a, a coach that she could select and, and not one from the previous era. But I guess, you know, uh, Dunn feels good with Stanley, at least to start this season. At least to start the season. That's a good point. But yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying initially, um, usually when, you know, you have a, a significant regime change like this, and I think it's pretty clear looking at the moves that the Fever made or didn't make also, they wanted to completely distance themselves from the Tamika Catchings era, the Tamika Catchings GM era, which is completely understandable. But they didn't fire their head coach, which, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not an advocate typically for people losing their jobs, but you would think that it's, it's usually easier in pro sports if things aren't going right to get rid of your head coach rather than get rid of your whole roster. But... Um, like you said, for now, Marianne Stanley is still at the helm. And um, the Fever did, of course, have significant roster overturn. But first, let's talk a little bit about uh, the 2021 Fever. You mentioned they once again had a very porous defense. Um, what exactly were they very bad at besides everything? Gosh, where to start? So so just, just um, we use Synergy, Synergy Sports a lot. And it kind of it gives uh, words for, you know, how for each team's rating, for each player and team's rating, you know, in the context of this is where they ranked. This is how they ranked up against, you know, other players and teams in that category. I believe it's what it's excellent, good, below average and poor. Right. I think maybe um, above average might be in there as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's possible. Um, But uh, yeah, if you look at the 2020 fever defense, it's uh, a whole lot of poor. Yeah, we poor, can just poor, below yeah, average, below run average, through poor, it quickly. Below. They were 11th. In defending spot ups, that's categorized as poor. They were 11th in defending the pick and roll ball handler. They were 10th defending transition, 10th defending post up. So th- that one actually surprised me because they actually did have some size at the center position and at the two big spots. I thought they might be a little bit better just defending straight post ups, but no. Uh, they were 11th defending the pick and roll roller. Uh, no surprise there, I would say. Um, all the way up to ninth defending cuts, which I think is a little bit more of kind of a, a random play, but they were 10th defending off screens, 12th defending off handoffs, you know, the, the list goes on and on. So in terms of just kind of individual play types, it was bad across the board. They also put their opponents at the line a ton. They never forced any turnovers, which I don't think is too surprising given the the defensive talent on this team outside of, you know, maybe Jessica Breeland and... D Rob, I don't know how many other, you know, defensive playmakers you would say this team had. Especially on the perimeter, yeah. Uh, especially on the perimeter is right. So it, it was a struggle, I would say. <laughs> it's funny. Um the only uh category in which they were not either below average or poor was was miscellaneous, <laughs> which is basically um the synergy people they couldn't really categorize what what, what play it was. So they just said either oh, average. Yeah, not great. Not great at all. I think, you know, you just look at this roster construction and you have a lot of offensive minded players from 2021, you know, their best player, in my opinion, Kelsey Mitchell, I think could stand to improve defensively. Tiffany Mitchell, I don't think is a real positive on that end of the core. Obviously they were playing heavy minutes with Tierra McCowan, who has her own defensive weaknesses. They tried some minutes with Victoria Vivians at the four to kind of open things up offensively. You know, that was not going to be like a, a defensive value add. Of course, like Kaiser Gondrzic and, and Lindsey Allen, those are not necessarily great defensive players. So it's no surprise that they were bad defensively. But I do think it's notable that this particular coach coached the worst defense in the league by a significant margin for the second year in a row. Yeah. 
you could point to the roster and yeah, it is true. They didn't really have much defensive talent on the roster, but if given that large of a sample size, you'd have to think some kind of adjustments are, are going to be made there, right? Well, I don't expect it to change too much uh, this coming season with all the young players that are going to play for this team. Um, but we can get there in a minute. I, I guess we should talk a little bit about Kelsey Mitchell, who is this team's, I would say, their star player, at least the the previous version of this team before making the number two overall pick in this draft. What did you think about Kelsey Mitchell's season overall? Um, you know, as the uh, as the resident Kelsey Mitchell stan, um, I think I'm pretty much ready to call it on this is who Kelsey Mitchell is. Um, and that's I say that with a little bit, little bit of disappointment, but also need to be realistic here. Um, after four years in the league, I mean, we've seen her bomb away from three-point range. She's one of the most dangerous outside shooters in the WNBA. We've seen her steadily improve her shot diet to kind of cut down on those mid-range pull-up jump shots. All of those did come back a little bit in 2021. Um, she can score the heck out of the ball bluntly, but she's still not a good defender and she still is not really creating shots for others. You know, the, the assist, I'm not, I'm not going to say just because a player doesn't rack up a lot of assists, that doesn't mean that they're a bad passer or an unwilling passer. Um, but she just hasn't shown like the ability to really consistently create shots for others. Maybe it's because she's being cast in this alpha dog scoring role, but at the same time, I mean, how many more seasons do you need to see before you say, okay, Mitchell's a, a shoot first guard? I think that's okay. You know, uh, it would be nice if she could do a little bit more for her teammates in terms of creating, but we talked over the course of last season and before, or I should say the 2020 season and before last season that, you know, she was in the bubble season able to really kind of drastically improve her two-point scoring, which I think is is very good, up to 50% from two in the bubble and was able to sustain that in 2021. We liked her evolved shot profile under the first year in Marianne Stanley, where we saw much more kind of off-ball movement and running through screens from Mitchell, who I think presents some of the most versatile shooting in the WNBA, you know, maybe not quite McBride, Quigley level, but probably the next best player after that. Would, would you agree with that? Is there anyone else that kind of comes to mind there? No, I think I'd agree with that. It, it, it seemed like, to your point, it, it seemed like in her first couple seasons, there was just a lot of dribbling into long jump shots. Whereas under Marianne Stanley, and this is something I think we can credit Marianne Stanley for, she's been you know running Kelsey Mitchell off a few more screens and, and, and getting her those open looks and, and, and diversifying her shot diet a little bit. So, yes. But this past season, it was a lot more pick and roll back to kind of like 30% of her possessions as the pick and roll ball handler, which does mean, of course, much more jumpers off the dribble, like you were just saying, much less shooting off catch and shoots, a lower proportion of her shots in spot ups, a lower proportion of her shots coming off screens. But she was still a very good pick and roll scorer in the 84th percentile last season, just under a point per possession. And I think that, you know, this would, I think previously I, I might have found frustration with this, but I think that I can kind of take this as a positive because we have, I guess, now a large enough sample to know that Kelsey Mitchell is like a good enough scorer, kind of no matter what role you're putting her in. Yeah, maybe we want to kind of see her run off a few more screens and stuff like that. But sh her offensive game, I think, even though she doesn't quite have those creation chops for others, like she's just not one of the elite kind of passing scorers in the league, her scoring game, like it is pretty diversified. She can pretty much do it in any role, whether it's more as an off-ball player, whether it's more kind of creating for herself off the bounce, like all the pieces have kind of come around that it's it's a pretty evolved offensive game, I would say, sans that, that one element. So I guess the key would be then, what is the ideal, what's the ideal archetype for a, a backcourt partner for Kelsey Mitchell? I didn't hate like a Julie Alamon type. I think ideally maybe you still have a little bit more scoring out of that position, um, but someone that can set the table for others a little bit. Alamon was great, obviously, because she was such a terrific floor spacer as well. She could kind of get paint penetration, even if she wasn't necessarily going to kind of put a ton of pressure scoring at the rim, uh, but she was quick and could get to her spots around the court and was obviously had terrific vision and stuff like that. So that that's a pretty good archetype, I would say. Maybe someone that could defend a little bit better than that. I mean, what do you think? I, I think I kind of like Mitchell like as a really good 
maybe second best offensive player on a good team, but you know, we just haven't seen her play with another elite offensive player sans like McCowan who has her own kind of limitations and uh, you know, fills a very specific role. I would say. I think the problem with a Mitchell McCowan lineup is that, well, first of all, you're not going to get as many minutes out of it as you want to, because you just, you simply cannot keep Tierra McCowan on the floor for more than what, 26 minutes a game. And I mean, you, 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 you said the defense and I think that's, that's the big, uh, that's the big holdup for me because Kelsey Mitchell is not a good defender. Julie Almond is not a good defender. So it, offensively, yeah, it's a terrific combination, but defensively. Mm. Yeah. Maybe that just wasn't going to be tenable defensively. And maybe that would explain part of why, you know, they were willing to part with Julie Almond, um, traded to the Chicago sky. Uh, but in any case, I mean, I think it's pretty clear given this past off season, they still believe in, you know, they still believe in Kelsey Mitchell as their, I don't know if you'd call her a franchise player, but they're willing to move forward with her as one of the team's primary options, right? That was really kind of the extent of players I wanted to hit on. Is that unfair? Is it too early to move on? No, to- it's it's not unfair because like, like I said, they, they punted like so many of their, of their players this past off season for good reason. Right. Um, and when you talk about this fever team in this context, it really is about the future. I mean, there, there is really nothing to talk about that we haven't already discussed at length already. Yeah, they were bad. Yeah, they couldn't defend. Yeah, they didn't really have any star-level talent. Yeah, their GM didn't make some didn't make any very good moves. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, what they did in the offseason and, and where they're going. Sure. So, in terms of, like, this actual roster, you know, you talk about their, like, free agent signings, stuff like that. There wasn't really any free agent signings necessarily, but it was a busy offseason. They traded for Bria Hartley in a trade that brought in draft picks and then they they traded tier mccowan to kind of consolidate some draft picks uh they ended up picking number two four six and ten in the first round drafting nilissa smith at two angsler at four lexi hull at six and then queen egbo at ten of course they drafted destiny henderson as well at number 20 in the second round they moved on from julie aleman in that bria hartley trade they moved on from tier mccowan to get a couple extra first round picks. They decided not to bring back Jessica Breland. They cut both of their first round picks this offseason from last year in Kaiser, Gondrzyk, and Aaliyah Wilson, as we mentioned. Unfortunately, I think they had planned on bringing uh, Bernadette Hattar over this season from Sopran, who I think flashed some real offensive effectiveness in her limited time in the WNBA last year. But Unfortunately, uh, Betty had a knee injury and will be missing this season. And then Chelsea Perry, I think also recovering from an injury, will be sitting yes. out this year. So a lot of uh, looking forward, I would say, for this roster. A lot of looking forward and a lot of draft picks to be discussed. They currently have, let's see, five rookies that are projected to make the team, I believe. So let's talk about them. Yeah, I think that the places to start is with Nelissa Smith. Widely considered, you know, the second player in a real kind of two-player draft when you're talking about star, superstar upside. What do you think about Nelissa Smith's ceiling? I think you had her number two, right? You wouldn't have mm-hmm. taken her over Ryan Howard. No, I think Ryan Howard was the clear number one overall draft. People, some people tried to make it a discussion. Um, I believe the ESPN mock drafts had Nelissa Smith at number one uh, for several installments, but... Uh, Honestly, I don't think it was ever a question. And that's nothing against Melissa Smith. Honestly, I think she's a, she was a tremendous player in college. She got better every year. She really does have that star look to her. She's just not the player that Ryan Howard is. But she's a pretty darn good consolation prize when you're talking about the draft lottery. And uh, I think Indy made the right choice in picking her. So I actually think that she maybe does have a slightly higher upside than Ryan Howard. And I'm usually all in on upside. Like if you have the number one pick, you probably should just take the the player with the absolute highest upside because you're you have the number one pick for a reason right 99 times out of 100 I would say that but this is probably the one time where I would go the other way because Howard to me has such a higher floor and has such a higher even like 75th 80th percentile outcome like anything short of these players hitting their absolute highest ceiling I think Howard is probably the better player but Smith like if if everything goes right for Nelissa Smith and she's the the player that she could be, I absolutely think that this player has the potential to be like the best player on a really good offense, maybe MVP ballot type player because of how unstoppable she could be on the offensive end. Okay, that's interesting. This is good. This is good. So you think Nelissa Smith can be an MVP candidate 
but it, it sounds like that's kind of a, a absolute best case scenario, right? Yeah, a lot of development to go. I would, okay. you know, we like her kind of face up game from in the mid post. That that's sort of like her bread and butter. Absolutely. You would say right, especially in in the WNBA. You know, she has a nice soft post up game. What do you think about her posting up WNBA fours? Do you think that's going to work? Typically, I'm not a fan of that, and and that and that goes for pretty much every WNBA four. This is here's here's this kind of leads into what I was going to ask you is if Melissa Smith is primarily a four, can she still be like that MVP type candidate? Because I think there's there's a big difference between a player of her of her caliber of, of her skill set playing the four and playing the five. If she's posting up as a four, she's good at it, but I don't think that's her absolute strength. I don't think that's that's the best place for an Alyssa Smith is posting up as a four. I don't think that's where her advantages are, are are best used. I think that she can be a very effective offensive player as a four. I I think if the jump shot comes around, which it has a long, long way to go, not a, a fan way. of how that jump shot looks. The percentages are not very encouraging. It's a very kind of long sort of mechanical jump shot, particularly the further out that she gets. She, she had... Um, I was at, sorry to interrupt, but I was at the uh, the preseason game between the Fever and the Sky. She missed, I believe, both of her three point attempts, and one of them was an air ball. Like like she she put up some very bad misses from three point range. It doesn't look nearly as good as her mid range shot. Yeah, definitely a concern. I can still just see a world where it eventually comes around, and between the floor spacing that she's able to create as sort of a supplementary skill, like you obviously, I don't think she's ever going to be a player that takes you know forty percent of her attempts from three or something like that. But no. I mean, she's just so explosive getting to the basket. She has athleticism that I think is extremely hard to match, but it's not athleticism in a way that has not been harnessed. You know, she can't, she still has the touch to finish over really tough contests. She's graceful about it. She's, she's extremely graceful and skilled with her athleticism in a way that creates an advantage. And I can see her sort of developing into being able to, you know, take advantage of when that second option comes, you know, defensively when she's forcing help. I think there's easily a world where, you know, she's sort of near unguardable, just one-on-one offensively at the four. Uh, and if she can just sort of round out her playmaking skills and stuff like that. And then, yeah, ideally, maybe this player does turn into a five, um, which, you know, we can talk about kind of the strides that that needs to take defensively. But I don't want to just say she has to be a five to necessarily hit the highest version of this player. But it sounds like maybe you, you think that's kind of like the best path going forward. I think it is the best path. I mean, that's that's the ideal scenario. Um, but in order to be a five, I think she'd be, she needs to work on her defense a lot. And let's just talk about that now. Cause I think that's the one area of her game that really has to catch up is her defense. Um, it's not like, like she can make some, some plays on defense, but it's almost honestly, the majority of the plays that Melissa, that Melissa Smith makes on defense, it's almost, I don't want to say she lucks into it, but what's a better way of putting that? Well, I think she, she sort of, um, gets beat pretty regularly but has otherworldly athleticism to kind of make up she's for able it. to recover very easily she, yeah exactly it's it's recovery after kind of an initial mistake okay okay yeah very good okay so we're on the same page there so basically if she's going to be a five she needs to be she needs to become a good rim protector i honestly don't see any of that right now and that's not to say that she can't develop it but it's a pretty far Let, let's let's make a little comparison here back when we were talking about the mystics you said you you, you see shakir austin being a bad defender until she's a good one, right? I don't think it's going to be that simple for someone like Smith. No, Smith has a much longer way to go just in terms of her instincts in help defense, you know, even just like effort and and stuff like that. Like she, I think she has a little bit of like, doesn't know how and a little bit of won't when you're kind of breaking down, like is she a can't, won't, doesn't know how. I don't think she's necessarily a can't defender though. Like she has... There's nothing like about her physical profile or the way that she plays basketball that makes me think that she's lacking the physical ability to become a good defender. No, she definitely has a physical ability. Um, and I think that's the one thing we, we can agree on. Um, at the very least, you're going to get elite play finishing from Alyssa Smith, whether that's in the pick and roll, whether that's in transition. In particular, I think um, she's going to be one of the best transition bigs in the league for a very long time. Um, she's just relentless on the glass. I mean, she's going to get you additional opportunities from offensive rebounding. And, you know, I, I think, I don't know how much pick and roll really they ran at Baylor, um, particularly under, under Kim Bulky, but 
I think she's got the tools to become a good pick and roll big in this league as well. So even if that, even if it's just that, she's still going to be a heck of a player. Yeah, I think she can do ideally maybe a little bit from the pick and pop, but just attacking the rim, like off the pick and roll, she should, I mean, there's not a ton of players that can actually like go up and finish in the air without coming back down outside of Brianna Turner. Smith can absolutely do that. I think she's, you know, one of the best in terms of just vertical athletes getting up towards the rim. You know, you, you can play perfect positional defense versus Melissa Smith and she can still either finish over you or around you. And like you said, there's not a lot of players who can do that. Yeah. And like a a lot of pick and roll bigs, they kind of just have to finish off the catch. Melissa Smith can take dribbles and, and make decisions as well scoring decisions you know maybe she's not the level of passer you kind of need her to be eventually but you know she's not in the brianna turner mold where a dribble kind of turns into a disaster like she 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 has very good offensive feel for the game in a way that i think is pretty rare for um a player where she is developmentally okay and hoping that nalissa smith you know eats her fill on offense this year um there's nothing really to play for besides individual player development for Indiana. So I'm hoping that she's going to be starting and playing like 28 to 30 minutes a game, right? Yeah, and seeing a lot of the offense running through her, I would say. Yes, yes. Um, but but also, you know, maybe some opportunities to just kind of finish plays, like you were saying, you know, run some kind of pick and roll as, as the big and stuff like that. But let, let's move on to their second pick, the number four pick in the draft, Emily Engsler. I think this was kind of our first, you know, surprise of the draft. Engsler, I think, was slotted more in sort of the five to seven range. A player I was definitely yeah. very high on, but to me, a player who kind of profiles as, you know, best case scenario, sort of like a star role player, like an Alicia Clark, not a player you're ever going to necessarily run your offense through or one that's going to kind of be your team's leading scorer or anything like that. But, you know, she's the kind of connective player that makes everyone else better on, on both ends. That's a very good way of putting it. And I think. It's a good way of, uh, of breaking down why I loved Emily Engsler as a prospect, particularly because of her defense. She does things that no one in this class can do defensively. No one in that draft class could have done defensively. Shout out to her hoop stats, by the way. They were very instrumental in, in helping put this in perspective. But she was the only player in D1 to have a steal rate of 5% or greater and a block rate of 7% or greater going all the way back to 2009. Nobody... No one besides Exler hit those two thresholds. So, and, and then watching her in person, I mean, it, it just sealed the deal for me. Um, she's the type of player who I think can be and will be at the top of the leaderboards in stocks, which is, of course, steals and blocks. Pretty much every year she's in the league if she gets enough minutes. Um, I mean, she's long, she's active, and she has great instincts. And when you put those three skills together, I mean, that's, I, I don't think you can call that stock threshold a fluke either. So, um, Offensively, maybe a little bit more of a mixed bag, but at the very least, you're going to get very, very, very disruptive defense from Emily Exler. Yeah, we can talk about those offensive concerns a little bit. I have big time concerns about her two point finishing at this level. It's um, bad. Yeah, she has some real kind of flub misses at the rim. She does not have elite size. I mean, well, let me just ask you do you see her more as a three or a four in the WNBA? Well, I see her more as a four, definitely. Yeah, me too. I think this team is going to play her a lot at the three this year, which, you know, for her rookie season probably isn't isn't the worst thing. We've seen players make the transition from three to four as they just get stronger and play in the W for longer. But either, you know, from either one of those positions, her two-point scoring is definitely concerning. Her, I mean, just what what is she really going to kind of be like a value add-on offensively? You know, I think she can be a, a connective passer, maybe not an elite passer, not one that's going to really going to dime up her teammates but one that will you know have a good floor game and make the right pass hit some spot up threes but you know there's reason to be concerned about her three-point shooting as well like it was a pretty good percentage you know 37 percent the last couple years if I'm not mistaken but on relatively low volume and with a very very concerning free throw percentage 63 percent from the line last year she was in the 50s in her last season at Syracuse so not a ton of like positive indicators in terms of how that shot's going to translate necessarily. You know, it's really interesting because I think Axler has plenty of juice off the dribble. Like she can get to the rim, but she just can't finish at the rim. 
when I was at the preseason game, I'll, I'll bring this up. It was, there was one possession where it was like, or one sequence where it was like the definitive Emily Engstler experience. She picked off like a cross-court pass. I forget who threw it, but she picked off a cross-court pass, dribbled it all the way back up the floor, and then missed a, like, just missed, just totally blew a left-handed layup. Um, then got the offensive rebound and put it back in. So it's like, well, that's Emily Engstler in a nutshell. She doesn't really seem very strong to me. I think she needs to work on her upper body strength. I'm like, when I, when you ask what her position is, I think I question more on offense than on defense because defense, she can guard just about anywhere. Offensively, I'm not sure how much she's going to give you really at either the three or the four. I mean, I think that was, you know, the most interesting thing about Engsler was she was offensively Louisville's four this season. They didn't play with two traditional bigs. She was essentially their, their power forward. Yeah. But she was playing at the top of the key all the time. She, you know, maybe she'll get overpowered by like the very biggest fours, you know, on the defensive end. If John Quell Jones is playing with Bree Jones or something like that, or if Asia Wilson is playing with another center. But other than that, like she'll be fine, I think, against most fours can switch very, very effectively if that's kind of the defense you want to play. And then I think she's a really great help defender as well, like getting down into digging down into the post and just jumping passing lanes. But you're right. The offensive limitations, like if she's going to be a good, effective player and one that's in closing lineups, like she probably is going to end up being like the fourth or fifth best offensive player in that lineup, right? You know, speaking to that defensive skill for a second, Louisville's head coach, Jeff Walls, was extremely complimentary of Enchler in in that regard. He said that uh, he has not seen a player with those defensive instincts since Angel McCartry. And that's pretty high praise there. But yeah, offensively, I mean, I think it's just... And she has tools, too. Like, she has ball skills. But just a matter of the physical aspect of it, I think. All right. Should we move on to the number six pick in the draft, Lexi Hull? Yeah. Um, This is where we get to uh, a long way to go to be a WNBA rotation player. Mm -hmm. She was a 37% three-point shooter over her four-year career at Stanford. 191 for 511 attempts, so really healthy volume, right? She she got him up. So you feel good that this player has at least one WNBA skill, which I think is not always a given for a mid-first-round pick, right? Yes, that's a good point. But, you know, I, I think that the differentiator is going to be a couple of things. Like, is she going to be over the course of her career? Because, you know, you can't really expect rookie players, I think, to be movement shooters, really. that That's kind of a lot to ask for. But is she going to be a standstill shooter over her career? Or can she develop into someone that you can really run off screens um, that can catch and fire off a little bit of balance and not much room necessarily to kind of get it off? That might predicate how long she's able to stick at all. And if she's like, you know, the 11th or 12th player or like a real rotation player. But a couple of concerns, of course, is she was a very, very bad two-point scorer in college surrounded by some pretty good teams, Eric. Like this is not necessarily starved for talent type college teams like she had a lot of good players around her that were honestly getting more attention defensively than Lexi Hall was do you think that's fair to say yeah definitely uh and that's that's going to be a problem even if she's you know firing up two-thirds of her shots from three like you know she never broke 41 percent scoring from two in NCAA so very very concerning and then you know the big one obviously is just like does she have the athleticism to defend at this level Okay, first of all, I, I just realized we have the exact same thing in our notes here. Uh, I also had the uh, the stationary shooter versus movement shooter thing. Right now, I'd categorize Lexi Hall as a stationary shooter, you know, and mo- mostly for those reasons that you that you stated. I I don't think she can move that well laterally. Um, I think she I think she does very well with the the tools that she has. I think when you talk about like a pick and roll, def- I think she's an effective pick and roll defender because she knows how to navigate screens on defense and she knows how to you know keep her center of gravity low and and has a high basketball IQ on that end of the floor. However, when you're talking about going up against WNBA level wings, she's just not going to have anything athletically for, you know, the the top scoring wings on most teams. And that's that's a pretty pretty big problem. And how that translates to her offense, I don't know if she's going to be able to just get open really in the WNBA. You know, part of what you mentioned that the two-point shooting you know, Stanford, they're one of those teams that, that ran a lot of chin. They ran a lot of Princeton, you know, a lot of motion in their offense. And that's when Hall was at her best, was making off-ball cuts. But pretty much everyone at Stanford is good at moving without the basketball. So that could very well just be chalked up the system. And, like, whenever she tried to dribble and create a shot off the dribble, it was nothing was happening. Um, and that's in college. So if a player can't do that in college, it's pretty much going to be a no-go at the WNBA level. 
I, I mean, I think the one thing that you can say is that pro spacing is a lot better. Like there's just not as many people standing in the paint in college. Um, but you know, the athletes are also much more quick laterally can hang with, you know, whatever you're trying to do off the bounce. That's the thing. I don't think she's going to be able to beat anyone off the dribble either. So no matter how good the spacing is, like if she can't beat her man one-on-one, then it's like, well, that's, that, that's, then it's not a WNBA level skill. Right. And so going back to what you were saying initially, what is her WNBA level skill? Standing in the corner and shooting threes, you know, that are created for her. Is that worthy of a number six overall pick? Nope. Honestly, that is worthy of kind of taking a few shots in the second round and getting the one that that's going to stick for you. That's kind of where I thought you would go. In fact, I think I mocked her uh, to your Connecticut son in the second round at, at 24, which I felt pretty good about that being a good fit and, and, and a realistic spot for her. Um, I just didn't understand the clamoring. Like it, it, this was, this was, I think the big, the first big shock in the draft was Lexi Hall going at six. And, you know, at the time, people were just like, well, that's Indiana. They're going to make weird weird draft picks. But people have been saying uh, on Twitter recently that, you know, the Aces traded up so they could get Lexi Hall. I don't know if there's anything to that. But if, if so, uh, I mean, again, these people know a lot more about basketball than I do, and they're a lot more plugged in. But I, I just don't understand that one. Yeah, I think it's going to I think it's going to be tough sledding for Hall. I just don't think she's there physically. You know, I think in a league where you have maybe 14, 15 roster spots and your player can be in the weight room, get stronger, be in a pro development system for, you know, a year and a half, two years before playing, I I might like Hall's chances a little bit better, but it's just a long shot for me for what, you know, this player as she is right now to become a solid reliable WNBA rotation player. One more thing. She did not have a good preseason. You know, they, they played against, uh, I believe it was Dallas. And she shot very poorly from three. You can talk about, you know, okay, make or miss league. You, even the best shooters miss a lot of shots sometimes. But honestly, Steven, I think a lot of that is just because of her limitations. Like, she doesn't have a versatile jump shot. Um, she's got kind of like a slow release. I think teams are going to be able to close out easily on her. And, you know, that, that just might be the shots are considerably more difficult for her at this level. I mean, we've seen that with other players, players that were good three point shooters in college that just, they don't, they have less time to get their slow release jump shot off. So yeah, Katie Lou Samuelson. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It just, you know, even though the statistical track record is there, it falls at a less reliable clip because it's just much better contested at, at this level. So, you know, remains to be seen. I would be happy to be proven wrong. Of course. Yeah. But if you think we're wrong, tell us. Let's move on to Queen Egbo, the number 10 pick in the draft. I think this is where our opinions might diverge a little bit, but you have much more, I think, of a foundation of knowledge for this player than I do. But I I would say also a long way to go as a WNBA rotation player. Certainly, she has a long way to go. And for what I'm going to say about her, there's a lot lot that needs to be taken in as far as context is concerned. Don't get me wrong. I was not really a Queen Egbo fan heading into the draft, and I thought this was another surprise pick. In retrospect... I think it was less surprising than the than the Hull pick. Well, what do you mean by that? Play. In retrospect, like like looking back on it, I, um, and that this is not considering uh, this is not considering the the game that I saw in person, the preseason game. I think Egbo at least. Well, first of all, it's number ten versus number six, when there was a lot more potential. I don't want to say star talent, but uh, players who could be considered sure bets to be WNBA level um, available at number six rather than number ten. And, you know, by by the time you get to number 10, if you already had three picks in the draft, you have, as, as you like to say, three solid bites at the apple. So if you miss at number 10, I think it's, you know, less costly than if you miss at number six, if that makes sense. But anyway, and, and Egbo, I think, is a player who, as you said about Hall, has one specific WNBA skill. But I think it's just going to translate much more efficiently at the WNBA level, and that is rebounding. Okay. This is something that I... I know you don't of, like rebounding specialists. No, I, I don't like rebounding specialists. There are quite a few that have come and go in the league, and I, I just don't think rebounding is enough to stick in the WNBA in the way that maybe shooting might be. You know, there there are very specific kind of one skill players that can really make that enough. I mean, it took Monique Billings playing in a very specific defensive system to kind of make being a rebounding specialist work. You know, being able to like finally hit 50% of her like two point jump shots. And so it's just, it's a, it's a long way to go. I would say, especially when you are a true center who has not been particularly efficient in college basketball. Yeah. This is, this is the problem here. Egbo shot 50% 
in both her junior and senior seasons. And for a big of her archetype, that's not good because you would think that most, I mean, I, I guess she took some like free throw line jumpers, but that's obviously not a good shot for her. And if you're, if you're a center who's basically paint bound or your most efficient shot is coming at the rim, you got to shoot better than 50%. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Um, particularly if you're mostly being set up by, by your teammates, because she doesn't really have a go-to post move yet. And she doesn't really have a left hand either. So those, and, and believe me, when I was, when I was looking at my prospects, my, my, my draft board, um, which is extremely comprehensive and always hundred percent correct. Um, I'm joking, but when I was looking at that, those two things certainly stood out to me. Um, but believe it or not, she was the player who I would say, you know, of these fever rookies actually pleasantly surprised me the most when I saw her in preseason. Yeah. Um, what stuck out to you in that sky game? Well, physically speaking, um, the Chicago front court just had no answer for her. They could not keep her off the glass. She was very difficult to box out. Like it's, um, like, you know, some, some of those, uh, players, they, 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 they execute that little swim move that, you know, it's just very hard to box them out because they'll, they'll give a second effort to try and get around their, their man on the boards. And she looked like one of those players to me. She's just so active and so athletic on the glass and Chicago's bigs, they were, they were following a lot as well off the ball, just trying to keep Egbo off the glass. The context that I was referring to previously is that the bigs that Chicago was playing were, was Ruthie Hebert, Tina Krajnik, and Emma Mieseman. None of whom are considered, you know, those... Not the most physical bunch. Not the most physical bunch. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, then she put up a double-double against Dallas as well. So, I don't know. Obviously, that game was not... uh, I wasn't there, and that game was not viewable because it's preseason. But um, I I think... And she also did a pretty good job of establishing low post position against a a variety of defenders. Again, not the most physical bunch. Um, But the physicality is definitely there. I think she can at least hang at the pro level, you know, on the glass. And I think that the path is there to becoming a good rim protector as well. You mentioned Monique Billings, and I think that is a pretty good comparison. That's that's the first player that comes to mind for me when I watch Queen Egbo play. Just a very, very athletic big who's still kind of learning the ins and outs of, you know, you know the game skill-wise. I don't think, don't get me wrong, I don't think that Egbo is going to be this effective when it, starts, when it comes to the regular season. When she does have to defend people like John Cole Jones or Sylvia Fowles or... Asia Wilson or all the all the really good established WNBA bigs. But like I said, pleasantly surprised. I think the vision is there. I, I, I see the vision now for why they drafted her when they did. And um yeah, you know, you know, maybe maybe they luck into a Leah Boston next season and Egbo like immediately just becomes a non factor for them. But going back to the the value for the pick, I mean it's much less of a problem at ten than it would have been at six. Let's move on to Henderson. Henderson I think was not uh, a prospect I was not as high on as some other people seemed to have been. I I would like her fit on this roster, I think, a little bit more if Kelsey Mitchell was a little bit more of like a developed playmaker for others. Like two inches taller. <laughs> Henderson profiles as, yeah, like a third guard who ideally is playing off the ball offensively. So either, you know, playing next to a offensive initiating wing so she can guard point guards or someone that can be a multi-positional defender. And as you're alluding to, I'm not sure she's going to have the size for that, but I I don't think she's going to be able to necessarily run a WNBA offense. I don't think she's really going to be a value added passer, but you know, she profiles, I think as a pretty good spot up shooter who can hopefully defend point guards. And you know, if you can get a rotation player at 20, that's a win. And, and the Fever maybe did that. Maybe they didn't. Well, we'll find out this season. Um, I mean, they waived Lindsay Allen. And I think at, at the bare minimum, she's going to give them more than Lindsay Allen would have. And honestly, in this iteration of the Fever, I would play her over Daniel Robinson as well. Because why not? Um, the one thing, I, you mentioned this, this, the shooting. I think that is Henderson's best WNBA level skill. She is low-key a very good spot-up shooter not high volume in college but i think she'll get a chance to showcase it in the wnba and if she's engaged she can get after it on defense as well but i mean the problem is as you mentioned she's kind of a a shooting guard masquerading as a point guard just because of her size i don't think she has i don't don't want to say playmaking but i don't think the decision making is there to be a point guard like you'll see a lot and this is one thing that i saw in the preseason game oh she did play overall pretty well against this guy you know, there's a there's an instance where she got into the paint and she just lost the ball. Like she gets too deep into the paint without making good, a good decision with it. And you saw that at, when she was at South Carolina, pretty frequently. She's got a knack for making big plays, but she's also got a knack for just 
making real head scratching plays. And as a WNBA point guard, you you can't afford to take that many risks if the potential rewards also aren't that great. I mean, you talk about you know value added passing and stuff like that. So, but yeah, like you said, uh, for number twenty, I like the pick. A lot of people would have taken her significantly higher, but uh, you know that's that's mock draft group thing for you. So, I mean, for uh, for what it's worth, I think she would have been a more appropriate pick for them at ten than I do at six. You know, what I'm I agree. Saying? I agree. Um, I mean, if if you compare it to the other um, other point guard in that range, uh, I think Veronica Burton was a much better prospect. Uh, but if Henderson went first round, it would be like, oh my god, why are they doing that? You know. The other thing about her skill, like if this team could ever get a defensive stop, she's going to be really good running the break with yes. Melissa Smith, you know, breaking out to the wing and providing some some shooting in, in those. And that's um, something we can look forward to. Like this Fever team in the past few years, you know, you mentioned their their weaknesses, um, of which there were plenty. They didn't really get on a run as much as I thought they would have. And this roster at least has the potential to do that with Henderson, you know, depending on how often she plays, Robinson, of course, and then the bigs, you know, Eggboy and Smith, I, th- I think are going to be a great... Uh, transition front court so yeah if, if henderson is the game i would expect them to to push the pace a little bit more the big problem i think to me with this draft is it very much seemed like instead of going out and this team that after cutting all of their first round picks from the last few years has very little sort of like upside plays on their roster you know instead of going out and getting the four highest ceiling or best prospects with these four first round picks the front office seemed to identify specifically, you know, with pick six and pick 10, I would say roles that they kind of wanted to fill as they complete this roster. Like, I think that's like a problematic and flawed draft process, no matter how good your team is. Like, look at Chicago drafting a, a pro-ready backup point guard last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they were great. But it's definitely a bad process when you've just cut a bunch of first-round picks in your last two drafts. And, um, and you're bad, Steven. Yeah, you, you traded the one team. player on a rookie-scale contract that has any type of upside in McCowan. And so you say, okay, we got our power forward scorer at two. Now let's go get a good defender at four. And now let's go get a spot up shooter at six and we'll get our rebounding center at 10. Like, I just think that's a very, you know, not very forward thinking draft process when this team is so far from rounding out its roster. Yeah. You're not building for 2022. You're building for beyond. In the occasion that one of those, those one or two of those players busts, then it's like, then you're kind of back to square one, right? There's probably going to be better players yeah if you drafted kirsten bell at 10 instead of queen egbo sure then three of your first round picks are probably best suited as a four but you know one of those players statistically probably isn't going to work out just take the best bites that you can get i mean i think almost everybody you know again this is a little bit of group thing but nearly everybody in the world would have had kirsten bell going higher than queen egbo in the draft you know what i mean yes and Burton as well. Yeah, she's not the spot-up shooter that Hull is, but she probably is going to profile as a better player than, than Lexi Hull. But uh, She's a heck of a better backcourt defender, which the Fever need desperately. So, you know, kind of rounding out this this team, this is kind of the first time that we've actually talked about a team that, that's completed their roster. D-Rob, Destiny Henderson, and Bria Hartley as sort of your point guards. Kelsey Mitchell and Lexi Hull as two guards you know maybe hull plays a little bit of three or maybe it's tiffany mitchell playing mitchell back up to two yeah yeah um but angsler and victoria vivians as well as tiffany mitchell they have nelissa smith and then queen egbo alana smith and and elena coates so uh no real discussing who who they'll keep who they might uh who they might bring in but you know who are who are you kind of playing from this roster and who's sort of more towards the back end of the rotation that's a good question. Um, I want to bring up Bria Hartley for a second because they acquired her, and I don't think she needs to play that much, honestly. Um, she's an accomplished player, but she's also on an expiring contract, and I would hazard a guess that she's not going to be around the next time the Fever are a good basketball team. So I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do with it. Then again, I don't think really Daniel Robinson needs to play either, but she's at least on a protected contract through 2023. Hartley's contract expires after this season. And if I could just jump in, I think like the best version of Hartley probably helps the rest of these players develop more, but she's just, to me, still a little... How much is that though? Like, is it, is it does it matter? And I just think it's too far away from where she actually is now. And I also think she's going to be the latest returning to the team, I think. You know, Fenerbahce seems That's to want to be holding on to their players as That's long as true. they can. But, you know, D-Rob, I think it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to just play somebody that can defend someone once in a while. 
someone that can just go get their own bucket a little bit. Hartley, I think to me, like you're saying, probably does not really need to play that much on this team. What about at the, you know, the wing rotation, Tiffany Mitchell and Victoria Vivians? I don't think there's really reason to play both of those players if you're trying to get it a lot of, I guess, developmental time for all these first round picks that you brought in. Mitchell, you know, is certainly the better individual player in some aspects. Victoria Vivians, you know, if she ever gets back to the player that we thought she was going to be, is going to open things up for players, the other players more with, with some shooting. But what do you think about that one? I mean, you said it all. Is Victoria Vivian's going to be healthy? Uh, we've, we've seen her get injured so much. It's, it's been very unfortunate. But Tiffany Mitchell is at least an established player who has established strengths in this league. And Vivian's isn't. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. If if I were to, to bet on who would be with the team this season, I mean, obviously, they're both going to be with the team. But I think Tiffany Mitchell is much more of a sure bet than Vivian's is in this case. And like you said, Vivian's is might just end up blocking one of their players that they recently invested in. So I would say that Mitchell, like Vivian's is of course taller and is probably the better three-point shooter as well. We haven't seen it lately. Yeah, I mean, Mitchell, Tiffany Mitchell had a great season last year because she almost stopped taking three-pointers, you know, finally. Um, that, was your, that, was your, that was your most improved uh That's right, yeah. And I, I stand by it. I think she had a, a great season. But, you know, like what, what does she do really to kind of further this team you know, I again, this is another one where I just wish that there was a little bit more flexibility for transactions in the in the WNBA because Tiffany Mitchell can help teams in different situations, I should say, more than she could help this Indiana Fever team, especially yeah. kind of coming off, you know, she's in an expiring contract herself, a protected contract for not like a, you know, close to max money or anything, but, you know, near 150K, maybe there's something out there that, that would make sense. But I don't know, like, you know, they, they have a lot of, young players which i think is great but other than kelsey mitchell like the veterans that they have on this roster i don't really think do much to kind of further the development of those young players backup center alana smith and elena coates any strong feelings on this one i think two players truly on you know the fringes of the league here i mean obviously vastly vastly different player archetypes right coates more of a traditional center smith theoretically profiles as a stretch four or a stretch five didn't see a lot of stretching when she was in phoenix but you know the sample size is also pretty small right but you know she also had three years to do it and yeah and was not able to do it yeah uh, you know she did have a nice bounce back season in the wnbl this year looks to maybe have rediscovered the three-point shot a little bit again still on on very small sample size but when you consider just how bad it was previously in phoenix you know you'll take any sign of improvement I do think, you know, this is kind of a nice situation to have for them to have kind of the more perimeter-based, you know, stretch big at, at backup center and then also kind of have the more rebounding, um, you know, paint-based big for sure. kind of big bigger matchups. I think, you know, Smith is younger. If her game works out, probably has a little bit more of a valuable skill set as a stretch big. I would probably try her first. And if, you know, if she is getting guarded at all out there, that's going to open things up for Nelissa Smith. And no matter what way you go, you're going to be an awful defense. So you might as well just try to make development for your future star offensive player as uh, functional as possible, I guess. I like that line of thinking. I like that. That's I didn't, th- I didn't consider that. Um, one thing to mention, Coates is not currently with the team. She actually hasn't been in training camp at all because she's, she's another player who's still competing over in Turkey. So the fact that they, they kept her through that, I think maybe says a little bit of, of what they think of her, um, but maybe not. What are some, you know, we don't want to go through strengths and weaknesses here because, you know, this is the worst team in the league. That There's not going to be many strengths and, and there are going to be a lot of weaknesses. So what what are some things that you are looking forward to about this team? Generally speaking, it obviously be the development of the young players. Um, but when you talk about specific strengths, rebounding, maybe. They've been a pretty good offensive rebounding team in the past, but that's just because of Tierra McCowan, and they no longer have Tierra McCowan. So you think they could be good offensive rebounding team as still, right? Because, you know, both Smith and Egbo are, are good de- offensive rebounders. Yeah, they have they have Nelissa Smith. They have Egbo. Those were productive offensive rebounders in college. I think offensive rebounding is a little bit of a young player's game. Uh, Elena, Elena Coates is pretty good on the offensive glass if they end up playing her. You know, Angsler, if she plays the three, which... I don't think she should really, but she probably will. Is probably an above average uh, on the offensive glass for that position. You know, they might be pretty decent getting to the line, depending on how effective Nolissa Smith is this year. Both of the Mitchells get to the line pretty well. 
And when when Alana Smith is in the game and when D Rob is out of the game and it's Destiny Henderson, you know, that lineup of Nalissa and Alana Smith, Destiny Henderson, Kelsey Mitchell and, and Lexi Hull, like that is kind of a floor spacing lineup that I wanna see sort of like feed the ball to Nalissa Smith and see what she can actually do with pro spacing. You know, every other lineup that they run out might be pretty tight and might get kind of ugly offensively. But running through Nalissa Smith with that or, you know, Kelsey Mitchell and Nalissa Smith with that uh, specific configuration, that that's kind of something I'm looking forward to. I really would like to see, like, a smaller lineup from this team. I don't think it'll be very effective, but it'll be fun. Angsler and Smith at, at the 4 and 5. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you drafted them. You, you know they're going to be part of your future. See what they can do. Or see what they can't do, you know? Give this team an identity. Like you said, they're going to be bad defensively anyway. So if they're going to be bad defensively, at least maximize their offense. There are some teams I think you could run that out against. And, you know, you're you're probably going to get killed, but it's not like you're you're going to get absolutely put in the goal every single time. Like Dallas with Saboli, Liberty, the Liberty with Howard, even Washington, you know, whether it's Elizabeth Williams or Shakira Austin, they're not players that are just going to like put you in the goal every single time if you play a little bit smaller. So, you know, try it out. See how those players can kind of hang with those specific defensive responsibilities and open things up offensively for the for your young players any other potential strengths i mean i had a hard enough time coming up with those to be honest yeah. <laughs> Here, here's what i want to ask you just to kind of round this out how many of these players do you think are going to be on the team the next time this team makes the playoffs kelsey mitchell and Melissa smith i would think emily angstler anyone else you feel good about honestly maybe egbo because i i mean She's going to be cheap. She's going to be on that rookie scale contract. And it's not like she's going to be a player who is, who you're going to be whisking out the door at the first potential opportunity, right? Because you're not sure like what, what her trade value is going to look like, you know? Um, I don't think she's going to be a starting caliber player, but I think she's going to be a valuable one to have coming off your bench. So maybe her. And I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say Tiffany Mitchell as well. Because you mentioned wow. she's entering. Yeah, because, well, here's why. You said she's going to be entering unrestricted free agency, as is like three quarters of the league, right? I don't know how high on other teams' priority lists Tiffany Mitchell will be. If the free agent pool is going to be that big, who is who's calling Tiffany Mitchell's agent at at, at twelve oh one a.m. and saying, "Okay, we we're, we're going to offer her a max contract"? You know what I mean? You know, and I'm, I'm guessing this might be a situation where it's like, if they make significant progress this year, and they it might be something where like. They're a total dumpster fire. They win six games again, and Mitchell's like, okay, I'm not coming back here no matter what. But if they do, if they are able to sell her on the vision, and, yeah, I mean, she's she's played here her whole career so far. And from as far as I can tell, they've treated her pretty well. So, you know, if, if they, you know, bring in a new head coach prior to free agency, and if they make progress this season in regards to their young players, and they say, you know, you know Tiff, we'd... We know the last few years have been really rough, but uh, we feel like we're making progress. We want you to be a a big part of our upcoming core. I could definitely see her staying. Of course, the question was, <laughs> who's going to be on the team the next time they make the playoffs? And I have no freaking clue who's going to be, when they're going to make the playoffs next. So, I don't know. Did you have any other ideas? No, I think it's just kind of the first three that you had mentioned are, are the what best about, bets. What about Bernadette Hattar? I mean, maybe she's, like, you know, she's older than... Kelsey Mitchell, yeah, she's she's That's 27 true. already. She's uh, older than than um, you may think, just because last year was the first time she had come over. So an international player plus coming off a, a pretty bad injury, it's it's hard to it's hard to tell. I mean, she might not even play in the league ever again. I mean, that that's that's a realistic outcome, unfortunately. But um, that's a very good question. Let's. I think that that brings me back to uh, an important point. They're not done. <laughs> this fever team, this rebuild is not finished. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens next. Uh, Next free agency period and next draft. Um, yeah, a couple unprotected. I mean, a couple protected contracts coming off the books, and a couple more true. first round picks next year. So that's true. Um, so they're they've they've set themselves up for a continuing rebuild. But yeah, first first step is is uh, well underway here. Uh, anything else we have to talk about the fever? No, I think we can wrap up. I think we can wrap it up. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to our final team outlook of the off season here. We will be taking next weekend off after stuffing all these team outlooks in in a very short period of time just to kind of enjoy the first weekend as fans. And we'll be back the following weekend to kind of recap uh, the first two weeks of the season here. If you want to support the show, which is always appreciated, you can 
follow, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at DoubleDownWNBA. You can follow Eric at E or myself at Trinkwald. All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We really, really, really appreciate it. Uh, take care. We will talk to you soon enough. Um, but in the meantime, enjoy some WNBA basketball. We made it.